Corporations are under intense pressure to keep on delivering short-term results. How can they escape that merry-go-round? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Relentless pressure to show quarterly results. Executives obsessed with boosting the stock price for their own benefit. Strains on budgets intended for long-term investment. All are symptoms of corporate short-termism. But can companies take the long view and still keep investors happy? My guest today thinks they can with the right approach to measuring success. He is Gregory Milano, founder and CEO of Fortuna Advisors and author of the book, Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth versus Current Earnings. Today, he'll explain why so many companies are under-investing in their future and failing to properly allocate capital for long-term investment. He proposes a set of solutions that allow senior managers to overcome the pressure for short-term gain and realign the organization with an eye toward future success. It's about thinking like an owner, he says. So here is my conversation with Gregory Milano. Greg Milano, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Greg, what power does an individual executive have to battle what you refer to as short-termism when so much of the reasons for short-termism today lie outside the walls of that company and with external forces? Bob, there's no doubt that there are many forces that are from the outside. If you're a public company, you've got investors and security analysts. There are journalists. There are just many forces acting on a company from the outside. But often we find that the biggest causes of short-termism actually happen inside the company. They happen because of the way the companies set goals, the way they do their planning and annual budgeting, the way they measure against those budgets, which discourages people from sort of reaching for the stars. And, and very importantly, how they manage their incentive compensation, using measures that tends to go down when people invest in the future and go up when people milk old assets leads to people doing just what you would think they would do. They tend to not invest in the future and they tend to milk old assets. It seems like what you're describing might be a little bit of a chicken and egg proposition because in the book, of course, you do acknowledge the pressure for quarterly results, the, the short earning cycles, the demands of shareholders for immediate results that may prevent an executive from taking a long term and doing some of the things you just described. So how much of that is an issue? Well, it's certainly an issue, but there are plenty of examples of companies that manage to overcome those external forces. The classic example, and it's an extreme example, I admit, but the classic example of these days is Amazon. Mm-hmm. You know, Amazon each year takes nearly all their profits and invests it back into the business. If you go back and look over time, their R&D spending was a few hundred million, and then it was a billion, and then it was three billion, and then it was six billion, and then 12, and then 20. And they just kept increasing it. Every time they made more money, they invested it all back into the business. And if all they cared about was quarterly earnings and free cash flow and return on capital and things like that, they never would have done that, and they probably wouldn't have built the company that they have. Acting more like that, maybe not exactly like that, but acting more in that direction would be helpful for many companies. 
Yeah, I, I wonder to what extent Amazon is an outlier. Sometimes you have to ask, like, how did Jeff Bezos do it? How did he get his investors to be so patient so that he spent years with that company before they even turned a dollar of profit? And even today, as you say, they keep plowing most of it back into the company. You're not going to find many other companies where your investors and your money is going to be that patient, are you? That's true. But if I could just talk one, a little bit about Amazon first before directly answering what other companies should do. Our measurement framework that's described in my book, the measure is called residual cash earnings. And it's a measure of cash profits in excess of a, of a cost of capital, if you will. And it treats innovation spending and advertising spending as investments rather than as expenses. And when you do that for Amazon, our model actually tracks Amazon's share price almost perfectly. Amazon is really not that different from the way Walmart was back in the day when they were building out their store portfolio, except Walmart got to put all their investments on the balance sheet. Amazon, because of the difference in their business model, was forced to expense all those investments against their profits. But there's still investments that are expected to have long-term payoffs. And when we treat them as investments, we actually get a very, very high profitability for Amazon. And again, it tracks their share price. Their share price is really not a mystery. It, it tracks the economic performance very well. Investments rather than expenses. That sounds like business 101 to me, but maybe have we gotten away from that? I mean, was that originally kind of the understanding? I mean, it's, it seems obvious to anyone when you describe it that way that things like advertising and R&D are indeed investments. They're not throwing money away on that stuff. You're taking a long term. Was there a time when corporations were more leaning toward understanding that? I think that's true. People were more understanding of it. But I think over time, there's been an increasing emphasis on producing financial results. I think when you look back 30, 40 years ago, growth was more important in people's minds. And percentage measures of profit margin and return on capital have become more important more recently. And one way to get a higher profit margin or a higher return on capital is to squeeze things like innovation and brand building. That's a problem. And I guess my, my quest through the last three decades of my work and now in writing this book is to try and reverse that and get people to understand that our investments are investments. And if you treat them that way, you'll get much better behavior and decision-making out of your people. I don't want to keep harping on this uh, external forces question, but there is, additionally, you do cite in the book the realization that we're in a time of very high shareholder turnover, that where they're looking for short-term value. Shareholders get in and out of positions very quickly these days. You have hedge funds that, for that very purpose, that's how they make their money. And so that's got to, to a certain extent, frustrate the attempts of executives to take the long view. That's right. I think that those forces are unfortunate, although even activist investors, there are many different types of activist investors, and some think quite long term. One of them endorsed my book, actually, on the back cover of my book. Another one was Tryon when they went after Heinz many years ago and tried to get them to stop spending money on short-term promotion and instead invested in long-term brand building. So sometimes they're thinking just like what we're prescribing. They come in different forms. But I think the real test that I often propose to people is, would you be willing to make an investment in the future that may be misunderstood now that may cause your share price to drop 10 or 20 percent in the short term? But if you're right, it's going to be 30 or 40 percent higher in a couple of years. You know, would you be willing to do that? And everybody says they'd like to be willing to do that. But Studies have shown that companies constantly pass up those kinds of investments in order to meet short-term goals, and that's really not ideal. They're just too wound up in producing the quarterly performance. 
Well, you're asking them to make a bet, aren't you? I mean, I guess all business investment is a bet of one kind or another, but you're asking them to make a what sounds like a rather risky bet. Well, I mean, that's what business is all about, right? You're making judgments yeah. about the risk-return trade-off of different considerations. And if they're thinking like an owner, they're going to be trying to drive current performance, but they would never try to drive current performance by cutting innovation spending or, or brand building or training their people or something like that. Yet we see that all the time in public companies. I think it's a matter of trying to get the guts, the, the boldness, the, the strength of character to be able to stand by the right principles and, and run with them. And if it produces the results that we've typically seen from companies that take this approach, the investors are going to be happy. They're not going to be criticizing the company because those results in the share price performance will prove out. Do you think that one of the problems is situations where the CEO's compensation is directly tied to the growth of, of, in value of the stock on a short-term basis? I don't think there are many situations where pay is tied to short-term stock movements. The two problems, I think, are the annual bonuses are often driven by bad measures. And let me come back to that in the context of supply chain in a moment, but driven by bad measures. And very importantly, because the performance goals for those measures are set based on budgets, you're basically telling people, plan for mediocrity, because then you'll have an easier budget to beat. In the trade, it's called sandbagging the budget, right? No athlete would ever try to convince you that they're going to have a bad night just so that you're really happy if they have a just okay night. But that's exactly what we're motivating managers all over the world to do. So you know, one of the the cornerstones of trying to embrace this sort of longer-term ownership-type mindset is to get away from measuring against budgets. But you can only do that if you have a very complete measure of performance. And the book outlines exactly what the most complete measure of performance is and how well it relates to values of companies over time and how we can have confidence that if it goes up, it's good, and if it goes down, it's bad, much better than we can with any other measure. You mentioned residual cash earnings as one important yardstick. Another one you bring up in the book extensively is TSR, total shareholder return. Could you explain that to me, please? It's a simple measure. It's a measure that we would think about if we made investments in shares ourselves. How much were we paid as dividends during the year and how much did the share price go up or down? If I buy a share for 20 and over the course of the year, I get $2 in dividends and the share price goes up to 22 well, I've now got 22 plus the two, I've got 24. That's a 20% return on the 20 that I spent in the beginning. So total shareholder return is, is just the return the shareholders get inclusive of all dividends and changes in the share price. And it really should be the motivation of management to drive long-term total shareholder return. Again, I don't care what it is next week or next month, but three to five years from now, I want to deliver strong value creation. And our research shows that to do that, requires not just cost efficiency and capital productivity, but it also requires growth. The reason I wrote this book, the reason I do what I do, is because many companies are underinvesting in their future. Giving them measures that give, provide a better balance of signals between investing in growth and delivering current earnings leads to better outcomes. It leads to strong current performance, but only in ways that don't cripple the long term. And so over time, we tend to do tend to see companies doing much better with this kind of approach. When a lot of companies today do have a good resource of money on hand, they're apt to use it for share buybacks, they're apt to use it for dividend payouts, and they're apt to just sit on their cash. That is a problem today still, is it not? It is absolutely a problem. And there are companies that 
really don't have much else to do with the money. They're in an industry where there really are no growth opportunities that would be efficient and effective. And so they need to distribute money. And so doing so makes sense so that investors can recycle that money towards smaller growth companies and so forth. But there are many companies in industries where there are plenty of growth opportunities, consumer products, healthcare, and so forth, where there are companies that are just taking all their money and, and distributing it to shareholders instead of reinvesting it. And I think you know, again, we're trying to encourage a better balance of emphasizing, you know, delivering current earnings and investing in future growth. And many companies, many large, high cash producing companies aren't investing as much as they should right now. And, and, and our goal is to bias them more toward caring more about the future and investing more in the future. A recent development that you may or may not consider relevant to what you're saying in this book, but I just wanted to bring it up. Last year, when the Business Roundtable challenged the idea of shareholder primacy, it took a new attitude toward shareholder value and said that other aspects other than just shareholder value were important in the running of a business. Of course, that was all about in the environment and human rights and things like that. But I wonder, does that also f begin to foster an environment that de-emphasizes that immediate return mentality and maybe work? in the favor of those who would go against short-termism. Absolutely. The way book writing works, the manuscript of my book was mostly set a year before. The book touches on stakeholders, but not in a way discussed by the Business Roundtable or since then. But I published and also co-authored a few articles in recent months. For example, one is called Value in a Stakeholder World. And that article talks about the idea of balancing stakeholder needs. It's very nice to say we care about all stakeholders. I think it's important. I think most good CEOs realize that you need to care about all stakeholders. You have to have happy employees and happy customers if you ever want to create long-term value. So it fits well with the theme of the book. The trouble that many companies encounter is, first of all, how do you measure that? How do you measure the value you create for your employees? Is it the number of employees? Is it the amount they're paid versus benchmarks. All of your employees make 10% more than the benchmark. That's value created for employees, let's say. And if you're creating more jobs, that's value created for employees. What if in order to provide value to your customers, you do something that hurts your employees? How do you measure the value to the customers? And how do you know if there's enough value being created to hurt your employees? In other words, Walmart, for example, has generally everyday low pricing, but they, their wages at least some people say, I've not studied it myself, but some people say their wages are generally low. And so they're helping many poor families with generally low pricing, but other groups of employees maybe aren't making quite as much money as they could make. How do they make the trade-offs between the different stakeholders? I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to figure that out. I don't think just saying we want to maximize value for all stakeholders is enough. I think we need to figure out how to measure it how to compare the trade-offs between one stakeholder group and another stakeholder group. And uh, I don't think anybody's figured all that out yet. And so that's actually what I'm focusing a lot more of my new research on now. Although, as I say, it's only really touched on in the book because the book was, was mostly written before that pronouncement by the Business Roundtable. Well, there's also a lot of nuance in what you're saying in the book. You're not discounting the importance of short-term views at all completely. You're saying that there's a certain amount of balance to be achieved. Yes, we have to look at more long-term views, but you can't rule out the need for some short-term profits at some point, correct? Oh, I want as much short-term profit as I can get without ever achieving it by sacrificing the long-term. I always like to think about what would an owner do? Bob, what if you and I owned a company? What would we want? We'd like to make a lot of money this year. But we wouldn't do it by sacrificing next year or the year after. And so the trade-offs we would be willing to make to hit a number this quarter or the end of the year or what have you 
would be different from what often happens inside companies. And it's those nuances, those biases that we're trying to, to shift to get better behavior. And it affects lots of things. If you think about supply chain, for example, if I want to maximize my profit margins, I want to own my supply chain because it doesn't matter how much capital I put in place. The more parts of the chain I own, the higher I can get my profit margins to be. But that may not be the, the best thing to do. It may be better to outsource some parts of the supply chain or even the whole supply chain. And I would probably have lower margins, but I also would have a lot less capital. And how do I do a trade-off to see if, if that's the right decision one way or the right decision the other way? Residual mm-hmm. cash earnings is the perfect measure to be able to say, is the incremental profit I get by owning some part of the supply chain worth the amount of investment I have to make to get it? The trade-off comes down to just dollars and cents. And what we're trying to do is to give people measures that when they try to maximize them, they're not motivated to take the short-term actions that they otherwise are encouraged to do by the typically implemented management frameworks. A lot of economists are beginning to sound the alarm about rising corporate debt to the point where they say that it could be the next thing that topples us into the next recession. You say companies aren't investing enough. They say debt is already at dangerous levels. How do you rectify those two views? Well, a lot of the debt especially in larger companies, is there because of distribution. In our 2019 buyback ROI report that we published last April, we showed that just about 100% of the net income of the 360-something companies that were in the study, just about 100% of their net income over the prior five years was distributed as dividends and stock buybacks. Well, if there's a, a debt problem, that's the cause of the debt problem. It's not because they're over-investing in the business. In fact, many of them are investing a smaller percentage of their profits back into the business than they were five or 10 years ago. I share the concern about excessive debt. We've published work that shows that companies with high debt tend to grow slower and tend to have worse long-term performance for shareholders. So I don't like companies to be over-levered, and, and I do discuss that in the book. But the cause of it is not that companies are investing too much. It's that they're distributing too much. When it comes to making the right decisions that could be called in some cases courageous because you're going against the short-termers in terms of uh, putting out, making investments now that are going to pay off later, is it easier or harder for a public versus a private company to make those necessary steps? I think it's easier for a private company or it should be easier for a private company, but it shouldn't be that hard for a public company. In the book, we describe a compensation system that exposes management to outcomes. If their investments beat hurdle rates, their performance goes up, they get paid more. And when performance goes down, even if they budgeted for that decline, they get paid less. It's it's results that matter, not variances to budget. And first of all, when people have that kind of a mindset, they're much less likely to take risks they don't believe in because their own money's at stake. If they destroy value for the company, part of the value they destroy without any ability to negotiate better targets or anything like that, comes out of their own pocket. And so they tend to treat the company's capital much more like an owner would to begin with. And then because of that, they have the ability to turn to investors and say, I don't get paid unless this works. I believe it's going to work. We've done a lot of work inside the company using information you don't have. And we believe it's going to work. We have no certainty it's going to work, but we believe it's going to work. And if it does, we're going to be paid for it. And if it doesn't, we're not. And so 
the way we're trying to encourage you to believe in our decisions is to know that we're as exposed to the outcome as you are, and we believe in it. We're willing to put our money on the line in order to make this good investment, and we won't be rewarded for it just because we've made the investment. We'll only be rewarded for it if it works. Most executives, high-level executives today, have some ownership stake in the companies that they're overseeing. I think that's probably not what you mean when you talk about what an owner-like culture is like. Can you give me a little more clarification as to what that term means to you? So at the starting point, think about two CEOs. One was the founder of the company, and nearly 100% of the personal net worth is tied to the value of the company. And so what that company is worth three, five, seven, ten 10 years from now is pretty much what they're going to be worth. If the company doubles in value, their net worth will double in value. If the company halves in value, their net worth is going to have in value. And they really are motivated to think as an owner because they are, right? It's uh, think Warren Buffett, so to speak. If you now contrast that with the typical CEO who might have a lot of stock ownership, but if the stock price goes down, next year they'll be granted more shares because the compensation committee will want to give them a market value of shares. And if the share price is lower, you need to give them more of them. So there's like these compensating mechanisms that wind up sort of making up for performance declines and performance increases in such a way that they really don't have anywhere near the amount of exposure to the success of the company as they really should. One investor I I had lunch with recently said to me that companies should embrace what are called fixed share allocations of shares in their long-term incentive plan. So every year you get 10,000 shares, 10,000 shares, 10,000 shares, whatever the number is. And so if the share price goes up, you're basically going to get more pay because you're going to get the same number of shares at a higher share price. And if the share price goes down, you're going to get less pay. There was a situation at IBM years ago where a CEO had, who owned a bunch of stock options that had been given year after year after year as the share price went down. It would have made many millions of dollars if he just could get the share price back to where it was when he took over. But that's not really like long-term ownership. The amount of somebody's pay as tied to outcomes is what really is needed to motivate ownership type thinking. One other point which is important about compensation is many people devalue in their own mind at least long-term incentives because of the vagaries of the stock market. Market goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. I have no assurance until it turns to cash of what those shares are going to be worth. But I have a very clear understanding of exactly how I can maximize my annual bonus this year. And so sometimes they'll do things to maximize their bonus this year, which might be bad for the long-term value of the company. And they might even know that, but they just want to lock in consciously or subconsciously. They just want to lock in the the more certain short-term pay that comes in cash. And so long-term incentives, I believe, don't have as much of an impact on people's behavior as they should just because of the different weights and different amount of control people feel they have over the different types of pay. Well, the book is called Curing Corporate Short-Termism. Future Growth versus Current Earnings. Greg Milano, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to discuss the book a little bit and and issue a very important corrective to the sensibility that emphasizes speed and immediate profit over long-term gain. But thank you so much for being with us. We'll link to the book in the show notes, but uh, thanks again. Thank you very much, Bob. I've, I've enjoyed the talk. That was my conversation with Gregory Milano of Fortuna Advisors, talking about how to avoid the curse of corporate short-termism. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. 
Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.